The Swiss Family Robinson, Chapter 19 Another Trip to the Wreck I rose before day to go to the seaside and inspect our two vessels. I gently descended the ladder without awakening my family. Above the scene was all repose. Below everything was in life and motion. The dogs jumped about me, the cock and the hens flapped their wings and chuckled, and our goats shook their long beards as they browsed. I quickly roused and harnessed the ass, and the dogs followed without bidding. As I approached the shore, animated at different moments by hope and fear, I soon saw that the boat and raft had resisted the tide, though it had partially heaved them up. I got quickly on the raft, took a small loading, and returned to Falcon Stream in time for breakfast. But not a single creature of its inhabitants appeared, though the sun was high above the horizon. I gave a shout as loud as a whore-hoop, which awoke my wife. Really, my dear, said she, there must be a magic charm in the mattress you brought yesterday that has lulled us into a so sound a sleep. Up, my lads, exclaimed I once again, the more we venture to parley with sloth, the longer she holds us in her chains. Brave youths, like you ought to awake at the first call and leap quickly and gaily out of bed. Fritz, a little ashamed, was dressed first, Jack soon after him, and Francis next. The ever slothful Ernest was the last. It is so delightful, cried he, to lose oneself again after having been awakened. One feels sleep come on afresh so gently. But it is my duty to tell you, Ernest, and that gravely, that he who indulges himself in all that flatters his senses will end by falling a victim to them. After this short admonition, we all came down, and breakfast over, we returned to the seaside to complete the unloading of the raft, that it might be ready for sea on the ebbing of the tide. We were not long in taking two cargoes to Falcon Stream. At our last trip, the water was nearly up to our raft. I sent back my wife and the boys and remained with Fritz till we were quite afloat. When observing Jack still loitering near, I guessed at his wish and consented to him embarking with us. Shortly after the tide was high enough for us to row off, instead of steering for Safety Bay to moor our vessel there securely, I was tempted by a fresh sea breeze to go out again to the wreck. But it was too late to undertake much, and I was unwilling to cause my dear partner uneasiness by passing another night on board. I therefore determined to bring away only what could be obtained with ease and speed. We searched hastily through the ship for any trifling articles that might be readily removed. Jack was up and down everywhere, at a loss what to select, and when I saw him again, he drew a wheelbarrow after him, shouting that he had found a vehicle for carrying our potatoes. But Fritz next disclosed still better news, which was that he had discovered behind the bulkhead amidst a small craft, the forefront of which is square, taken to pieces with all its appurtenances, and even two small guns for its defense. This intelligence so delighted me that I quitted everything else to run to the bulkhead when I was convinced of the truth of the lad's assertion, but I instantly perceived that to put it together and launch it would be an Herculean task. I collected various utensils, a copper boiler, some plates of iron, tobacco graters, two grinding stones, and a small barrel of gunpowder, and another full of flints, which I much valued. 
Jack's barrow was not forgotten. Two more were afterwards found and added with straps belonging to them. All these articles were hurried into the boat and we re-embarked with speed to avoid the land wind that rises in the evening. As we were drawing near to shore, we were struck with the appearance of an assemblage of small figures ranging in a long line on the strand that seemed to be viewing us attentively. They were dressed in black and all uniform, with white waistcoats and full cravats. The arms of these beings hung down carelessly now and then, however, they seemed to extend them tenderly as if they wished to embrace or offer us a token of friendship. I really think, said I to the boys who were steadfastly gazing at them, that we are in the country of the Pygmies, that they wish to form a friendly alliance with us. Jack, oh no, father, they are certainly Lilliputans, though somewhat bigger than those of whom I read the description in Gulliver's Travels. You then, child, said I, consider those travels as true, that there is an island of Lilliput, and inhabited by dwarfs. Jack, Gulliver says so. He met also with men of an immense stature, besides an island inhabited by horses. And yet, I must tell you that the only reality in all his discoveries is the rich imagination of the author, whose taste and feeling led him to resort to allegory for the purpose of revealing grand truths. Do you know, Jack, what an allegory is? It somewhat resembles a parable, I presume. Right? One is very similar to the other, Jack. And the pygmies you mentioned, are any to be found? No more than there are Lilliputans. They exist only in poetical fiction, or in their erroneous account of some ancient navigators in which a group of monkeys has been fallishly described as diminutive men. Fritz, such probably are the mannequins that we see now stretching out their arms toward us. Ah, now I begin to see that they have beaks, and that their arms are short drooping wings. What strange birds! You are right, son. They are penguins, or ruffs. Ernest killed one soon after our arrival. They are excellent swimmers, but cannot fly, and so confused are they when on land that they run in the silliest way into danger. While we were talking, I steered gently towards the shore to enjoy the uncommon sight the longer. But the very moment we got into the shallow water, my giddy Jack le leaped up to his waist into it and was quickly on land, battering with a stick among the penguins before they were aware of his approach, so that half a dozen of them were immediately laid flat. The remainder, seeing they were so roughly accosted, plunged into the sea, dived, and disappeared. As the sun declined, and we despaired of finishing before night set in, Cat, each of us filled a barrow in order to take home something. I requested that the tobacco graters and iron plates might be in the first load. Arrived at Falcon Stream, my wife exhibited a good store of potatoes, which she had got in during our absence, and a quantity of the roots I had taken for manioc, and in which I was not mistaken. I much applauded her diligence and foresight, and gave Ernest and little Francis their share of approbation. But now, said I, for some supper and repose, and if my little workmen should be industriously inclined, tomorrow I shall reward them with the novelty of a new trade to be learned. This did not fail to excite the curiosity of all, but I kept my word and made them wait till the following day for the explanation I had to give. I waked the boys very early, reminding them that I had promised to teach them a new trade. What is it? 
What is it? exclaimed they all at once, springing suddenly out of bed and hurrying on, on their clothes. Father, it is the art of the baker, my boys. Hand me those iron plates that we brought yesterday from the vessel, and the tobacco graters also, and we will make our experiment. Ernest, bring hither the roots found underground. But first, my dear, I must request you to make me a small bag of a piece of strong wrapper cloth. My wife set instantly to work to oblige me, but having no great confidence in my talents for making either bread or cakes, she first filled a copper boiler with potatoes and put it on the fire, that we might not be without something to eat at dinner time. In the meanwhile, I spread a piece of coarse linen on the ground and assembled my young ones around me. I gave each of the boys a grater and showed him at the same time how to rest it on the linen and then to grate the roots of manioc. In a short time, each had produced a considerable heap of a substance somewhat resembling pollard. The occupation, as is always the case with novelties, was amusing to them all, and they looked no further into the matter. One showed the other his heap, saying in a bantering tone, Will you eat a piece of nice cake made of grated radishes? I now informed them that the manioc was known to be the principal sustenance of the whole nations of the continent of, of America, which the Europeans who inhabit those countries prefer to even when our wheat and bread. I added, These are, there are many kinds of manioc. One of these shoots rapidly, and its roots become mature in a short time. A second sort is of more tardy growth, and there is another, the roots of which require the space of two years to be fit for use. The first two kinds have pernicious or unwholesome qualities when eaten raw, but the third may be eaten without fear. For all this, the two first are generally preferred, as being more productive and requiring a shorter time for being fit for use. By this time, my wife had completed the bag. I had it well filled with what we called our pollard, and she closed it securely by sewing up the end. I was now to contrive a kind of press. I cut a long, straight, stout branch from a neighboring tree and stripped it of the bark. I then placed a plank across the table which we had fixed between the arched roots of our tree, and which was exactly the right height for my purpose, and on this I laid the bag. I put other planks again upon the bag, and then covered all with the large branch, the thickest extremity of which I inserted under an arch while on the other, which projected beyond the planks, I suspended all sorts of heavy substances, such as lead, our largest hammers, and bars of iron, which acting with great force as a press on the bag of Manoik, caused the sap it contained to issue in streams which flowed plentifully on the ground. Fritz, this machine of yours, father, though simple, is as effectual as can be desired. Father, certainly, it is the simplest lever that the art of mechanism can furnish, and may be made extremely useful. Ernest, I thought levers were never used but for raising heavy masses such as blocks of stone, and things are that de of that degree of weight. I had no notion that they were ever used for pressing. Father, but you see that the point at which the lever rests on the plank must always be the point of rest or compression. The point at which its extremity touches the roots of the tree would no doubt be that of the raising power. If the root was not too strong to yield it to the point of the lever, but then the resistance at the point of compression or rest is still stronger and presses effectually as you see the contents of the bag. However, there is another manner of proceeding, but it would have been much too tedious in the process for us to imitate. 
They make trusses of the bark of a tree, and with it form a basket of tolerable size. They fill it with manioc and press it so tightly that the baskets become shorter and increase in breadth. Then they hang the baskets to the shortest branches of trees and fasten large stones to them, which draw the baskets again leftways. By which action upon the manioc, the sap runs out at the openings left by the trusses. Mother, can one make no use of this sap? Father, certainly we may. The same use it as food after mixing with it some pepper, when they can procure them some sea crabs. Fritz, Father, it no longer runs a single drop. May we not now set about making the dough? Father, I have no objection, but as there are some poisonous kinds of manioc, it will be prudent to make only a small cake at first by way of experiment, which we will give to the monkey and the fowls, and wait to see the effect instead of exhausting our whole store at once. We now opened the bag and took out a small quantity of the polar, which already was dry enough. We stirred the rest about with a stick and then replaced it under the press. The next thing was to fix one of our iron plates, which was of a round form, in a little hollow so as to rest upon two blocks of stone at a distance from each other. Under this we lighted a large fire. And when the iron plate was completely heated, as we placed a portion of the dough upon it with a wooden spade. As soon as the cake began to be brown and underneath it was turned, that the other side might be baked also. Ernest, oh, how nicely it smells. What a pity that we may not eat some of it immediately. Father, I believe you might safely venture, but it is perhaps better to wait till the evening and run no ri greater risk than the loss of one or two of our fowls or of the monkey. And we may say this trial of the cake will be the first service he has rendered us. As soon as the cake was cold, we broke some of it into crumbs and gave it to two of the fowls, and a large piece to the monkey, who nimbled it with a perfect relish, making all the time a thousand grimaces, while the boy stood by envying the preference he enjoyed. Fritz, now tell me, father, how the savages managed to grate their manioc, for surely they have not, like us, an instrument fitted for the operation, and tell me also, if they call their composition of, by the name of cake or bread, as we do. Father, the savages having no such article as bread in their bill of fare, have consequently no word in their language to express it. At the Antilles, the bread from the manioc is called cassava. The savages make a kind of grater with sharp stones or shells, or when they can get nails on which they set a high value, they drive them into the end of a plank and rub the manioc upon it. But now, I pray you, good wife, give us quickly our potato dinner, and we will afterwards resume the baking trade. The first thing after dinner was to visit our fowls. Those which had eaten the manioc were in excellent condition, and no less so the monkey. Now then to the bakehouse, young ones, said I, as fast as you can scamper. The grated manioc was soon emptied out of the bag, a large fire was quickly lighted, and I placed the boys where a flat surface had been prepared for them, and gave to each a plate of iron, and the quantity of a coconut, full to make a cake apiece, and they were to try who could succeed the best. They were arranged in a half circle round me, that they might observe how I proceeded and adopt the same method for themselves. The result was not discouraging for a first experiment, though it must be confessed. We were now and then so unlucky as to burn a cake, but there was not a greater number of these than served to feed the pigeons and the fowls which hovered round to claim their share of the tree. 
My little rogues could not resist the pleasure of frequently tasting their cake a little bit at a time as they went on. At length, the undertaking was complete, the cakes were put in a dish, and served in company with a handsome share of milk to each person, and with this addition they furnished us with an excellent repast. What remained we distributed among our animals and fowls. The rest of the day was employed by the boys in making several turns with their wheelbarrows, and by myself in different arrangements in which the ass and our raft had a principal share. Both being employed in drawing to tent house the remaining articles we had brought from the ship. When all was done, we retired to rest, having first made another meal on our cakes, and concluded all with pious thanks to God for the blessings his goodness thought fit to bestow upon us. Mm-hmm.